your host, Nicole Saliver, and welcome to the Cultural Cultivators podcast, brought to you by Belay Creative and Cultivate Labs, where we explore the diverse and dynamic world of Filipino-American culture. In each episode, we delve into various aspects of film culture and speak with entrepreneurs, leaders, artists, and creators who are shaping and pushing the boundaries of their respective fields. Our goal is to not only showcase the richness and diversity of our culture, but also foster a deeper understanding and appreciation of the ways in which these cultivators shape our world. Join us on this exciting journey as we explore the cultural landscape and cultivate a greater appreciation for the beauty and complexity of the Phil M experience. Follow us on all social media platforms at Belay Creative or Cultivate Labs, both with a K. Ruby Ibarra is a rapper, director, and spoken word artist from the Bay Area. She released her debut album, Circa 91, in 2017 to critical acclaim. Most recently, she was featured in Vogue Philippines, as well as promotional campaigns for Amazon Music and Spotify. She is also a songwriter for Fox Network's hit TV show, The Cleaning Lady. In this conversation, Ruby talks about how, despite all her success, she still struggles with her role of representing Filipinos in the entertainment industry. I don't believe it's representation if it's just one person. That's not representation. For me to truly succeed, my community needs to succeed. In today's conversation, we talk about how late 90s and early 2000s Bay Area hip hop and Phil M R&B music shaped Ruby's identity. We also got to the root of imposter syndrome, and Ruby talks about her secret superpower. This is definitely a side of Ruby that we are so grateful we got to see and share with you, our listeners. You can find Ruby on Instagram at rubyabara and visit her website at rubyabara.com. Ruby. I love to start these conversations with calling in ancestors. We started this practice with Ate Allison in the first episode. So to ask you, which ancestors would you like to call into this conversation today? Oh, I love that. First and foremost, thanks so much for having me, Nicole. Knowing that our conversation is going to you know, center on my music, my art, but also on my history and a bit of my personal life. I think I definitely want to call in ancestors like my Lola, my grandmother, who I grew up with for about the first 10 years of my life and really was like a second mother to me in terms of guidance and mentorship. And I honestly don't think that I'd be the Penai that I'd be today if it wasn't for my Lola that I had earlier on in my life. And you know, with that being said, with the music that I create and even the relationships that I build, especially when it comes to my friendships with other Penais, my friendships and collaborations with other women, I think a lot of that is informed by the relationship that I was taught by my grandmother and making sure that a lot of those conversations are sincere, that, you know, being present is important. And just the sincerity, too, and 
being genuine with other folks. I try to be mindful of that. You know, at the end of the day, I can collab with artists A, B, C, D, but if the intentionality and the sincerity isn't there, then I'd have to ask myself, why am I here? Why am I doing this? And I think, you know, to kind of summarize, you know, why I choose my Lola, I'm thinking of my Lola at this moment. She taught me all those things as a young Penai girl about making sure that we take care, we nurture, and we protect the relationships that we have. And that's what I hope to bring to the table today and thinking about our conversation too, and that I'm mindful and I'm honoring our conversation in the most authentic way as possible. And in addition to my Lola, thinking about ancestors, I also have to, of course, mention the late Manang Don Mabalon. Manang Don, to me, remains as one of my inspirations as a Filipina trying to break through in the arts, especially in a space where I also want to document my own personal history in it. You know, when I think about historians, I think of Manang Don first, about her really opening up the doors for our community to be able to say that we've been here, that it's important for us to really create these spaces where we acknowledge who we are, but also acknowledge those that came before us. So with that being said, I also want this conversation to be a representation of that and honoring the folks that came before us, because without them, you know, we wouldn't have spaces like this. And you no know, shout out to Balai Creative for creating a space like this where we get to engage with one another and celebrate who we are. I love that you spoke about your Lola because I feel like I wouldn't be the artist I am today without the influence of both of my Lolas, which I don't believe in coincidence, but in alignment. Mm -hmm. My own Lola is from Eastern Samar, which is very close to where you were born and hey, grew amazing. up and I just wanted to ask there's two questions in that right because I know you speak in past interviews and it's you know knowledge that you came from the Philippines at a very young age and you came to the Bay Area in the 90s but the Philippines still is part of your identity it's part of you it's part of your you know your artistry so how have both worlds shaped this identity of Ruby Avara and your music as an artist? Everything. They both shaped everything. First, I'll talk about specifically Tacloban City in the Philippines. You know, that to me, when I think about that location, that's the origin story right there. That's the early beginnings. Even though I spent only the first about four years of my life in the Philippines, after moving to the U.S. and immigrating here to California, you know, me and my family would often go back and forth, especially during the summer vacation from school. My parents always made sure that we stayed connected with our, not only with culturally, but with our relatives back home. So we had, you know, a very close connection with my Lola, even before she immigrated to America. Also, I remember, you know, growing up and seeing my mom. I don't know if this still exists, but back then in like, the mid and late 90s they would have like those calling cards where you only get like 30 minutes on one card but you pay like five dollars for one so you had to make sure like within that 30 minute time frame you got everything that you wanted to say like speak it out fast like you gotta you again you gotta be intentional with your words because you're only given a limited amount of time 
And I remember, you know, having a lot of those conversations and getting to know my cousins and my Lola in that way through the phone. And then when we'd see them in the summertime face to face and we'd spend maybe like two or three months in the Philippines, it was always kind of like a continuation of the conversation that we had started. And so for me, you know, when I think about the Philippines, I think about family. I think about all my relatives that I grew up with. I think about my mom's history. I've learned a lot about the Philippines, both the history and the culture through my immediate family, you know, just sitting down with my Lola in the afternoon after school or with my mom in the evenings after dinner and just bombarding them with questions as early as I can remember. I remember, you know, being a small child and already being very curious about the world and specifically about people. I think I was probably kind of like a, a pseudo journalist at the time where I had like a list of like 10 questions every day that I asked my Lola just because I was just curious to see what kind of life she lived back in the Philippines and what her upbringing was like. And I think when I recognized that the life that she had lived growing up was completely different from my experience in America as a first generation film, I thought, wow, how amazing. Like this, her story is completely different from mine, but yet we're family and, you know, we're still tied in that way where, you know, we're obviously related, but we have a lot of similarities in our journey, but at the same time, very different. For example, she shared with me a lot of the stories of having experienced World War II and what the Philippines was like during that time or being under the Marcos regime, especially because my family lived in Leyte, in Tacloban, where Imelda's from. And so just hearing kind of the context of, you know, their personal lives and seeing that side by side with the history I was learning about both in school and outside of school, I think that was very interesting to me as a young kid and began my formation of my understanding and my kind of imagination of what the Philippines was like through their experience. And with that being said, you know, whether it was my own personal experiences as I got older or those stories that I heard from my Lola and my mom, those are all now part of the stories that I tell, part of the lyrics in my songs. And I think all of that is reflected in the work that I do now. And that's why, you know, the Filipino culture definitely plays a large part in my music because that is the basis of my story. I'm Penai, I'm Filipina, I was born in the Philippines, I have family that's from Tacloban and Davao, and I want to make sure that I carry that with me in, in the music that I make. And as I enter you know, new spaces, especially spaces where I don't see a lot of Filipinos, I want to make sure that other people know what our stories are like, especially for the communities that I'm a part of. And on the opposite side of that, when I think about America and California, this is the place that raised me. This is the place that taught me about what being both Filipino and American was like, especially in the 90s and early 2000s and what it means to be an immigrant. I don't think that, you know, my songs would be the same if my family hadn't moved to the U.S. I think that's the entire basis of the whole Circa 91 record was what was my experience like being a Filipina in California during this time? And, you know, when I think about my musical influences too, a large part of that is due to the fact that I grew up in the Bay, you know, whether it was hieroglyphics or listening to E-40, Souls of Mischief, you know, these are artists that inspire me 
even now as an adult and also laid the groundwork for what Bay Area music sounds like and could be like. And I always want to honor that in my music too and making sure that the people that inspired me, that I'm constantly paying homage to that as well. Yeah, it was like the golden age of hip hop in the Bay, I feel like. Absolutely. We had Tupac, we had, you know, even like in the 90s R&B, it was like Panay and Jocelyn Enriquez and Buffy. And one voice. And one voice. (laughs) (laughs) Shout out to one voice still doing the thing. Yeah, what an era though to grow up during that time where, I'm glad that you bring that up actually, like specifically growing up in the Bay in the 90s and hearing artists like Jocelyn Enriquez, One Voice and Kai on the radio. I think it was on 106 KML or Wild 94.9. And then at the same time, like coming home from school and turning on, I don't know if you remember CMC. Yeah, I was just going to say that Chewy (laughs) Gomez on CMC. With Chewy Gomez and then watching One Voice's When You Think About Me music video on rotation on that station. You know, when I think back about those experiences now, Little did I know that pretty much, I think, kind of showed me that there was no impossibility in being a Filipino and an artist because there were these artists that were thriving at that time here locally and, you know, representing us and doing it in such a groundbreaking way and while putting out very dope music. And I think because of artists like Jocelyn and because of artists like One Voice, it made this Penai like want to become an artist even more for sure. Yeah, I would even say like Rocky Rivera and Bamboo, you know, coming out in early 2000s and just seeing that possibility. I was just watching Blues Clues today with my son and I was oh, like, yeah. how dope with is Josh, it? Josh, uh-huh. yeah, that he gets to see someone that literally looks like his grandpa on TV growing up when I didn't have that until like, yeah, late 90s, early 2000s, seeing Panay and One Voice and their music videos on CMC, which was like a super like random channel. (laughs) (laughs) I know, but as a little kid, I was like, man, forget about TRL. Like I'm not trying to like vote for these music videos. They already have millions of, you know, fans and millions of followers. Like I want to support the local acts, the homegrown, like the the people that look like us. Yes. These artists that have music that speaks to our people. And I'm also glad that you mentioned, you know, Bam and, Krish also because they definitely are some of my inspirations when it comes to specifically, you know, Filipino hip hop. I just want to quickly share when I first heard Native Guns for the very first time. I don't know how I came across their music specifically, but this is going to sound bad. I downloaded Native Guns' album off of Napster. <laughs> Shout out to Bam and Kiwi. <laughs> but I think someone had posted that, you know, this is a Filipino rap duo. So, of course, it piqued my interest. I'm like, let me check out their music. I downloaded their music. The very first song, it was um, Barrel Man. Oh, my gosh. My mind was just blown. I had never heard, you know, Filipino hip hop or just even hip hop in general in that way where a lot of the elements were, you know, traditionally Filipino, whether it was instruments or sounds or even just the use of some of the language like here and there in their tracks. And then hearing Bam's flow and Kiwi's precise like storytelling, I was immediately inspired. I'm like, wow, we can be rappers too. We can be MCs and do it in a way that's just so cool and so empowering. And I feel like every time there is a Filipino artist, for me in the Bay Area that 
has made waves or does things that Jocelyn Enriquez has done or Bamboo and Rocky Rivera, for me, there is no greater kind of form of representation than those moments and experiencing those moments when I saw them for the first time because not only was it inspiring as an artist, but personally as me as the individual, it kind of validated my experience because I saw my experience through them and also heard it through their lyrics. And this is why representation matters. Absolutely. Right? Like this is why we do what we do at Balai Creative and supporting artists, you know, no matter your background and where you come from as far as first, third, whatever generation. But I love that you kind of segue naturally into this because speaking about music and the power that music has within our culture, within our communities, within like folks seeing themselves, I think the same thing goes for your music, right? And this anthem that we have for young Panais to stand up and take space and be vocal about what matters to them and their own experience here, especially in America, being Asian American, you know, you're not taught that in societal mm -hmm. standards. You know, you're taught mm -hmm. to be small, to not take up space, to be quiet, yeah. to be a model minority. But like, as we both know, ancestors of what I, what I women. <laughs> yes. Right. We like never back down from a fight. We are brave warriors. That is like the go to when people think of what I people, mm -hmm. you know, I, I love to honor my grandma in that way. And that like I speak my mind and I never back down from a fight. And I feel that that same courageous spirit is with you when you are rapping and when you are sharing your stories and being on stage in your songs and i guess my next question for you is how has your music been a way to channel your own decolonization journey and to continue this fight against oppressive forces wow i love that question so much thank you for that compliment by the way i think you know first and foremost how decolonization has played a role in my music is that when I think about even just the kind of artist that I am and what I choose to talk about, that alone has already been kind of a decolonizing process. And what I mean by that is at the very start of you know my engagement in hip hop, I remember being a young MC. I first started out rapping, maybe it was around my freshman year of high school. And a lot of the songs that I talked about were my personal experiences at the time of, you know, my family stuff and kind of like what I was feeling and thinking as a young teenager. But I didn't really fuse in kind of my stories about my culture yet, I think because it wasn't necessarily a conscious decision, but maybe kind of reaction to knowing that, you know, our Filipino stories aren't really in the mainstream. And I think I kind of strayed away from even talking about Filipino earlier on in my career because I probably in the back of my head thought like, is anyone in my audience going to be able to relate to this? And, you know, moving further from that, as I began recording more and more in my home studio and collaborating with other artists, one experience that I also want to talk about is I remember, you know, recording and doing multiple takes, stopping a recording session and doing it again, even though I got all the lyrics down perfectly. But just because I heard like a small accent peek out, you know, through one of the words, I'm like, oh, that sounds a little bit too fobby. Like, oh, I didn't pronounce that as correctly as I should have. 
working through this kind of mentality and having these kinds of beliefs and understanding of my voice and how I wanted my voice to be portrayed, how I wanted to be portrayed as an artist, I think it took a lot of unlearning within that process, years of unlearning until I realized that, you know what, this is pretty effed up. Like this is wrong for me to even be thinking this way. And I don't think I was equipped with the right knowledge and the language to be able to understand that that was because of colonization. That was because of self-hate. That was due to the fact that I didn't know about my history or I was made to believe that I should be ashamed of who I am because we were invisible. We were an invisible and still in many ways an invisible community in this country. And I think when you feel like you don't exist, you try to create kind of a new identity for yourself because how else are you going to portray yourself if you can't do it in a way that feels authentic, if that makes sense. And so it definitely was a long road to get to, I think, where I am now, where I feel confident and just kind of, you know, come to terms with wanting to be unfiltered and wanting to just present me as I am, as I wholly am. And now, you know, when I record a song, I don't even think twice about like whether or not, you know, my accent is showing because I am bilingual. I grew up speaking what I what I since my mom is, you know, from the Visaya side and I also understand and can speak a little bit of Visaya and I've grown to learn how to speak Tagalog as well. And now I think more so I embrace those languages. I want to incorporate our languages in my music because I always feel like that's kind of a window for people who've never heard of Filipino languages to for the first time to be able to hear it, to be able to, for me as an artist to also speak it because as you know as me and you nicole are, as creatives know when we speak something out like there's so much power to put it out in the universe to put it out in this space there's power in that and for me to record a rap put some what i what i language in there that to me is giving it power and unsilencing myself and you know showing people that this is a language that should be heard this is a language that has a history of people and communities that have spoken it and should it be something that I should want to purposely bury. I've told people before in other interviews or other shows that when I speak what I what I or when I speak Tagalog in my raps, I feel like I'm putting on a cape. Like I'm I feel like a superhero with like these are my additional powers like right now when I'm rapping on stage. For me, it feels even more powerful to rap in what I want than the moments when I rap fast, when I do like the triplets and the double time flow. I'd rather rap in like what I what I or Tagalog because it's also powerful in, in knowing that we don't hear that too often, especially in the spaces where I feel excited to bring them to. Like, for example, when me and the Balik Bayans got to perform at the Getty Center back in the beginning of 2020, I was like, come on, we know spaces like this. As much as, you know, I'm, I'm super honored and grateful that they opened up their space for me and my band to be able to perform there. It's also not lost on me that a lot of these spaces are historically white, are historically hetero male normative. And for us to be able to not only tell our story, but do it in a way where we're utilizing our own language and doing it in an uncompromising way, for me, it's kind of taking ownership and taking control 
of our own narrative by choosing to do so and showing people like, I don't need to tell you the translation. There doesn't have to be any subtitle to when I speak, you know, this other language, because I think, you know, for far too long, languages that are not English have been othered, have been cast as foreign. And I want to show people that, you know, our languages are just as beautiful, are just as powerful, have just as much education when we talk about like, oh, English is the language of those that are educated. I want to completely shatter that narrative and show people like, no, you know how difficult it is to speak what I want. I like the total stuff that comes with the language and just kind of dispelling that myth of, you know, English is the language of the world and showing people like, no, we have to think beyond that. There's other languages out there that exist. And especially in the Filipino community, where I think a lot of Filipino Americans have been raised here in this country to believe that we have to learn how to speak English and, you know, forget about our native tongue. Because I do know that whether it's my friends or my younger sister, a lot of us haven't been taught from our parents themselves or our Filipino languages. For the longest time, I would question myself, like, why is that the case? You know, how come my Mexican-American friends, a large number of them, are able to speak Spanish and a lot of my Vietnamese friends can speak Vietnamese and so forth. But for when it came to like the Philam community, I always pondered like, how come a lot of us don't know how to speak, you know, our Filipino languages? And I think later down the road, I came to a realization that it was because learning and speaking English was our form of survival in this country. You know, as people who come from communities of immigrants, we learned early on that in order for us to kind of survive here, we had to, we had to hide those things. Our parents had to put their Tagalog, their Basaya, their Ilocano to the side when they were in public spaces. Otherwise, they would be met with racism, discrimination, and sometimes even violence. Because as you know, as we both know, there's still a lot of racism that happens, you know, to our communities of color, to our communities of immigrants. Even though, you know, for our parents' generation, it was a form of survival, I want to kind of challenge that history where now, hopefully, from our generation and the next generation, that we don't have to think of it in that way and kind of use it in a way where we control, I think, the power that comes with our language and to show people again that, you know what, we're tired of having to hide who we are and we're proud of who we are and where we come from and language is a large part of our culture and we shouldn't not only be ashamed but we shouldn't not have to learn it in order to survive here i was just like yes yes <laughs> you know i echo so many and honestly as third gen phil am i am from that family that had to assimilate so much that they lost that language both my parents were born here <laughs> And growing up, both of them never learned Visayan or Tagalog or even Warai Warai. And now as third gen, I feel like I'm missing out on a whole piece of me because my parents never learned that. And then they never taught the importance of teaching that to me and my grandparents the same because they wanted not just to survive, but also success. Yeah. Because when they come from, you know, a society that sees european centered language and beauty as the upper mm -hmm. echelon and mm -hmm. quote unquote success <laughs> of course you know they're controlled to think we need to erase all of that we're in a space now where we can kind of redefine what success exactly looks like it sounds like i mean 
just as an example, like the Us song. Yeah. The chorus itself has Tagalog lines like sprinkled all throughout it. And even in the verses, like both me and Classy, you know, do rhyme is in Tagalog. And to think that a song like Us has been on a TV show like Cleaning Lady on Fox or on Blind Spotting or in a film with Vanessa Hudgens in it, I'm hoping that, you know, this is an indication that people are being more acceptable of hearing, you know, diverse languages and that the people in our community can, you know, see that our language ultimately won't hinder us from success because one thing that I hope the US project shows is that look, this is a song that's very political. It utilizes Filipino languages and it's still gotten on such large platforms where hopefully it can serve as an example that using our language can lead to success with it as well. And not the old way of thinking of we need to hide it in order to survive or in order to succeed. Yes. And I love that you also brought up earlier that speaking it felt like a cape, a superpower, right? Because I believe that when we utilize and are in our power, there's that connection to ancestor, mm-hmm. right? And it's sort of like a calling of our ancestors, to bring that in and to remind us of the power that our ancestors and that we have because of that bloodline. Absolutely. I think with a lot of communities and a lot of cultures, history before, before, you know, written history, it's always been oral history. And, you know, with that, of course, comes with language. And to think that our ancestors used to share, whether it was through song or through storytelling, but it was through their languages and a lot of the languages that have been passed down now like that was what came out of their mouths that's what they spoke and for me to again use that in my songs now i like to think of it in that way that you described too that it's also an extension of our ancestors language in the way that they shared who they were and they kind of immortalized themselves through their words i love that i love that i mean this is the whole intention of this podcast is to be a recording and oral history of our stories of the folks in our community and culture that are actually, you know, pushing us forward, (laughs) giving us this possibility of what can happen when we stand in our power, when we decolonize all the junk that we've learned, (laughs) you know, and really like Ate Allison said is like fight against these oppressive forces for liberation, for freedom. I feel like we can talk forever. (laughs) I'm noticing we just went half an hour on one question. (laughs) I'm so sorry. No. I think that's my fault. Uh Uh-uh. Do not ever apologize. I can talk about language forever. (laughs) I love it. I love it. I sort of want to jump, though, because, you know, we have a limited time. Oh, yeah. It's like those calling cards back in the day. (laughs) Exactly. It's like we have to be really intentional about what we talk about. But I do want to ask... Because I asked Ate Allison this too, and I also want to touch on not just all the amazing things. And here's the thing that sort of popped into my mind as you were speaking. You know, in the Mm -hmm. beginning of your career, you said there was all this pressure. And I get it, you know, as a creative myself and being, you know, trying to break into Hollywood, there's all this pressure to basically whitewash (laughs) ourselves and make us into this model minority that is likable and accessible to white folks. I'm just gonna say it, I'll be real. Yeah. 
Like, no, that's real. That's the pressure for us as minority women of color. But I see now, and what I love about you so much is you're like, F that, you know, and you really honed in on who you are, your identity, your culture. And now I feel like the world, it's turning, right? Um, yeah. It's turning into, and what I love about this, because I have my own son and he gets to see himself on TV it's turning to more possibilities for people of color who are in their power, who are standing unapologetically in their culture and <laughs> using that, you know, as not just like representing, but also like, this is just who I am. And I'm not going to apologize for that or be ashamed <laughs> of that anymore. And so I just say all that because I notice now you have all these amazing things like you're in vogue philippines right i don't know how but <laughs> <laughs> i know how i, I know like, how. Where, did, where did i become a model <laughs> you give the looks i see the smizy going on in those pictures <laughs> ruby you work of art is it all was I years of a selfie practice <laughs> yeah. But not just that, I mean, you're, you know, writing songs for the cleaning lady and you're in blind spotting and all of these like beautiful pieces of, of art that are also a reflection of who you're becoming as an artist, right? An actor, mm -hmm. producer, not just poet and rapper. You're blooming, you're thriving. A food connoisseur. Yes. <laughs> All of the things, <laughs> all of the things. But I also know with great things, it comes great self-doubt sometimes. Absolutely. I also deal with this imposter syndrome. Uh, okay, we're about to talk about this for like the next hour then. <laughs> and I think what's important for our listeners, especially the creatives that are listening to this podcast, what are ways that you like not only deal with the imposter syndrome but like get over that challenge get over that self-doubt and that no i deserve to be here you know i'm waiting for someone to give me the insight on how to work through imposter syndrome or better yet unlearn imposter syndrome because it's been one of my most difficult barriers i think and especially as i enter new spaces where there's less and less Filipino-Americans in the workspace and historically less also Filipino-Americans that have been part of projects like that, you know, I start to ask myself, like, why me? And I think it's a combination of imposter syndrome, but also this new kind of mainstream idea of representation. And I want to kind of tackle the word representation first because I know that it's wonderful that we're here and it's Apida Heritage Month. And every time I feel like it's a Heritage Month or History Month, like in October, Filipino American History Month, the number one like keyword usually that's thrown out there is the word representation. And I feel like we've begun to use it a bit too loosely nowadays where we put on like an Asian American face on whatever platform that is or a project. And we say, okay, job's done, that's representation. And I feel like there's less and less intentionality put behind it. I start to ask myself, are we just starting to fill in quotas? Is this all just for show now? Are people kind of 
jumping on this bandwagon because that is the in thing to do or the popular thing to talk about. And I think being cognizant of all of this, I'm, for lack of a better word at the moment, kind of afraid sometimes to embrace the opportunities that I'm a part of. For example, like when I say that I'm featured on this and I, I see people, you know, comment on my social media and say like, oh, Ruby out here, you know, representing for the Filipinos, representation matters. And I think why I'm fearful about that is because I don't believe it's representation if it's just one person, if it's just a couple people, if it's just even a handful of people. That's not representation. For me to truly succeed, my community needs to succeed. And I'm, I'm not saying this in a way that's, you know, egotistical at all, not saying that, you know, I have a multitude of opportunities. I'm just saying that when I do get an opportunity or a door opens for me, you know, when the word representation is brought up, I've been kind of nervous around that and owning that because I don't know if, you know, what I'm necessarily doing is beneficial to everybody, if that makes sense. Just because it may be beneficial for me doesn't necessarily mean it's beneficial for my kapwa, for my kababayan. To further kind of speak on that, I also want to mention that the imposter syndrome that I've felt is, you know, very much due to a lot of the colonization that we grew up learning of self-doubting ourselves, of self-hate, of not seeing ourselves in the media that we consume. And just having very limited visibility so that when we do enter these kinds of spaces, you're like questioning yourself, like, what the heck? What am I doing here? And again, why me? Or even, for example, like when I get compliments and I get to meet some people who support my music, I'm always like, "Eh, thank you. And I'm like, I'm like, I'm afraid to receive compliments. And I think it's because of so many years of self-doubting myself, of not loving myself, of not believing in myself where now if someone does give me a compliment or has something positive to send positive energy to send my way i kind of bounce it off with my own negative energy of myself and that's one thing that i have to constantly constantly work at on a daily basis of kind of having to step out of the situation and reminding myself like why are you even doing this in the first place ruby why are you making music why do you do what you do And I think when I'm reminded of my purpose in the space of music and arts and creating and what my mission is at the end of the day, I think that's when I kind of realize that, okay, take a second. Like, I think you're here to serve a greater purpose and to remind myself, you know, the purpose isn't yourself, but the purpose that you have to fulfill is to be able to change history, to be able to open the door so that the next set of artists that want to be in this space, that want to have this opportunity down the road, it's going to be an easier path for them. And that A, you know, they're not doubting themselves. And B, it becomes more of a norm where our communities not necessarily say like, oh, we've never seen a Filipino in this kind of project before. And I think I just have to kind of in those moments own it, but at the same time also being mindful of the purpose, again, being intentional. And I think as long as I remain intentional in the work that I do and the things that I say and in the people that I work with, that hopefully I can someday completely unlearn all of this stuff that 
I've not only been taught, but I think has also been passed down to me. And, you know, the generational imposter syndrome is also part of generational trauma. It's tough. It's tough. This is a really good question. And I'm glad that we've included this in our conversation because I don't know. How do you deal with it? Can I kind of ask you? Yeah. You know, it's a constant, right? Just like what you said, it's this ancestral generational trauma that, you know, I think we first have to recognize that. And it's important to recognize that because it's not just ours. Like mm -hmm. I said, I feel like our trauma, including our healing, gets passed down through our bloodline from our ancestors and also mm -hmm. to our descendants, right? And so for me, I'm doing so much work and this is like a daily choice. It is a daily choice. It's an effort that you have to actually like as an output, have to actively work on. Yes. It's not a passive thing. Yes. And it's especially as a creative Yep. And so it's like this daily choice of do I show up to my work? Do I show up to my craft? Do I show up for myself? Or do I allow that to just like hinder me and shut me down? And sometimes it's even just, yeah, I am a creative. I am a writer. I am a director. I am a producer. Sometimes it's just saying it out loud. Oh, yeah. Like, that's the other thing. Like the title isn't like to myself, oh, to other yeah. people, to the like you said earlier, to the universe and really own it. Right. And and sometimes it's just like I know this sounds cheesy as heck, but looking at my vision board every day. Oh, you need to have a vision board. And, you know, being really like, yes, I'm doing this project, even though it's not finished, even though it's not fully fleshed out, even though it's only in the second draft. <laughs> I'm doing this project. And I know that, like, when I sit down to my computer or my notebook or whatever, I have access to Ancestor who is also helping me with this project. And I think mm -hmm. that allows me to think beyond imposter syndrome because it comes from a different place and a different realm. And it's a gift that I'm getting from ancestor and whatever spirituality you want to label it. And it goes beyond this capitalistic idea of that art needs to make money. Yeah, It gets to make money. But it doesn't always have to be this hustle, hustle, grind, which Hollywood and the music industry, I think, has basically stamped on all art. You know, like it needs to sell. It needs to make numbers. It needs to, you know, have little. All these expectations yeah, now. Commercialized. Yeah. And so I think when I think back to, like you said, the intention and the why of my art and what I'm creating it goes beyond imposter syndrome because it goes straight to legacy. It goes straight to what am I leaving mm -hmm. for my child? What am I leaving mm -hmm. for the next generation? Why is this important? Not just for me, but like for my son to watch one day or hear or listen to even this podcast. Like I do this for him. I'm going to cry. Mm. Uh. <laughs> I do this for I him that. so that he can hear this one day as an adult and be like, yeah, this is possible. Anything is possible. Whether I want to be an artist or whatever, uh, you know, point guard on the Warriors or <laughs> <laughs> or anything he wants to be, you know. And so when I think about imposter syndrome, I think it's just like this human patterning that was given to us by white folks of power. <laughs> Men. Yeah. To make us believe that we're not deserving when we are 
I think one of the key words there is deserving. Like, how do you define whether you deserve something? And for our people in our community where we've been left out of the conversation, mm. uh, where our history and stories have been silent, but also rewritten. Mm. I think because of all of that already, you know, being part of the beginning of our story so that when we do start creating and adding to that story, I think it's only natural that we start feeling like I'm not deserving of this or our confidence is stripped down. But I think that because of, you know, podcasts like this, conversations like this, artists like Rocky Rivera and Jocelyn Enriquez, that inherently is dismantling what imposter syndrome means for Filipino Americans, for our community, and showing people that we need to kind of shift from that belief system that we don't deserve to be in the spaces when in the reality is, I think a lot of us don't realize is that we've already actually been in a lot of these spaces. Like for me as a musician, I just want to quickly mention, I don't know if you've heard of the band Fanny they were predominantly Filipino American women in this band in the late 60s. They were actually the very first Panais who got on a billboard here in the US and also charted in the billboard charts. And when I found out that piece of like amazing, you know, fact and history, it made me realize like, oh shit, like we have been here. We have been doing the damn thing in music. And to me, that was even more affirming for what I was doing. And it made me believe in myself more knowing that I'm on the right path because other Panais have already done this work. Other Panais have already opened these doors. And for them to have opened the doors decades and decades ago, now when I am in these you know, spaces or performing at the Getty Center, for example, I don't feel like an outsider anymore knowing that our people have already been chipping away and breaking down the barriers for us to get there. Where when we do get there, we should take in that moment. We should celebrate, not put ourselves down. Yes. I love how this conversation has just organically went there. <laughs> and also, you said something about how we've been in these spaces. I think it's the same for like activism and knowing about, you know, the Filipino Americans who came before us, just like Ate Allison mm -hmm. and the worker that she's doing with ethnic studies. Yeah. You know, but I think for us as creatives, part of our get to is to, like you said, representation. But, like, show the representation of the different Filipinos. <laughs> like you said, there's, like, just a handful before of Filipinos in hip-hop. Now there's so many more. And it's beautiful. There's so many. It's beautiful to so see. So many amazing ones. Are there any that you're excited about or that you listen to? Okay, I'm just going to say number one right now, Classy. She just released her album, Good Seeds, on beat rock music. Her album is phenomenal. You know, when I think about an artist who really is able to display and showcase their personal and artistic growth on one record, I feel like Classy's done such a great job doing that. And you really get a glimpse of who she is in this brand new record. Another MC that I really love is Marco Kane. He is also an incredible rapper with a great flow. And shout out also to Bettina Francisco and Amihan from the Bay Area. They're both also very dope MCs. And to me, I just feel like we're in such a great space right now where there's so many Filipino MCs specifically. And you get a different flavor and a different story and a different voice from each one where, you know, there's 
such a variety and everyone's thriving and collaborating at the same time. What I love about the Bay is just how I never feel like we're siloed. I could go out to an event this Saturday and I'll see the same folks at another event like next next weekend. And I just love how we're so supportive of one another up here in the Bay Area. And there's just this, I think, like common love of pushing our culture forward and bringing our community onto bigger stages. And everyone just has kind of like the same mission right now where it's such a great collaborative space. I love that you bring that up because <laughs> I feel like that's also your intention, right? Behind the community work and the activism work that you do too is this idea of kapoa, this interconnectedness. And I know I asked Ate Allison about her why, but I also want to know your why. You have this amazing nonprofit program called Panay's Rising Scholarship Program that you co-founded with Ate Allison and other beautiful Panay's. And I just wanted to know, what is your why? Why was it important for you to give back to the community, especially Panay's in higher education and just, you know, the community as a whole? I think it's important always, you know, to talk about the whys and to also reflect on why we do things, especially when we work on projects collaboratively with other people. For me, when this idea came about, this was in 2018. I remember, I think it was initially supposed to kind of be like a one-time event thing where we did a fundraiser or gave back to the community in that way. But at that point in my life, us had such amazing traction. It was about, I think, like a couple months since we released the Us music video. And the response was beyond anything I could even fathom. Even to this day, I, I still can't fathom like the impact that it's had on people that have watched it and the reception that it's gotten. And I remember getting to a point in my career where I asked myself like, okay, the song's doing great. I've been doing a lot of shows, a lot of great opportunities. But what is it that I really want to do? And like you mentioned earlier, Nicole, like what legacy do you want to leave behind? I feel like ultimately that's kind of like the umbrella question to my entire career. I can release an X amount of projects. I could do an X amount of features. But what is it really that I want to get out of this? Like, why am I doing music in the first place? And for me, I didn't want to know that a lot of my performances or my music was becoming transactional. I feel like that was the opposite direction of where I wanted my career to go. I knew inherently I always wanted to bring it back to the community. Because ultimately, it's the community that's even uplifted me to the opportunities that I've gotten. I'm standing on you know, so many shoulders of ancestors, but also pioneers and artists that have come before me. You know, Like I mentioned earlier, it's not for the Jocelyn Enriquez, the Bamboos, the Rocky Riveras, the Hopis, Kiwi, Native Guns, Blue Scholars. Like, there's no way Ruby Ibarra would even have the same amount of streams as I do now or have the same visibility because those people, those artists, those amazing artists started that conversation or opened the doors to that visibility in the first place. So for me, you know, I started asking myself, okay, us is doing great. What can I do to utilize this song that it means so much to a lot of people, especially the youth, and utilize it in a way that gives back to them but in a fruitful and meaningful way where it's not transactional. And so I started this conversation with Ada Allison, who obviously is the perfect person to always kind of pick their brain every time you have moments of reflection like this. And together, you know, we decided like, why don't we start a program that gives back to 
young Panais because a song and a video like us has inspired so many Panais. But other than the music itself, what is it that we can give to them? And for both of us, we were in agreement that it was education, you know, that played such a large part in our lives. Obviously, for Atta Allison being an author and a poet and a professor and, and her also having started the PEP program here in the Bay, education has been key and pivotal in her journey. And for me, in the same way, I remember being a young immigrant kid at five years old. Honestly, like one of the most important ways that I learned how to construct sentences in English when you know my first language was what I what I and how to even speak English was through books. I remember being like four or five years old until midnight. Every night, my mom would read a book to me and I would learn how to read a book through her. And I mentioned this also in the KQED event, but in the mornings, opposite of that, in the morning time, we would watch Mr. Rogers and Sesame Street together on KQED. And that to me also served as my educational tool of you know, how do I learn how to speak English? How do I communicate in English? But also, how do I communicate my own stories and my beliefs and my opinions? And it was through, you know, these spaces like educational TV broadcasting and also through books and literature that I was able to even form these kinds of words, the same words that allow me to sustain myself to this day, that allow me to pay the bills. And, you know, with that being said, I knew it had to be aligned with education and so me and at the allison you know we were like let's do a scholarship program let's give back to the same panais who've supported this song and let's make sure that we encourage them in the same way that we were inspired to make this us song and that was through arts and activism you know at the core of the us song i think you know it's very anthemic sounding and it has a dope ass beat and dope bars but at the very core of it it is a statement it is political. It's letting people know, you know, like this is where we come from. This is our history, but we're penized and we're going to be unmoving in who we are. And we're going to stand in solidarity with one another and uplift one another. That really is what the Us song is about. It's about the collective. It's about the kapwa. It's about the we. And I think it would be doing the song a disservice. That's so much about kapwa. If we didn't have a program like Penais Rising, which is also about the kapwa, the community, the collective community and making sure that we encourage the community to continue to bring each other up along with us. And, you know, just thinking about my past too and my history, it was my single parent mother, my mama, who put me through school, who not only taught me how to read and how to speak English, but financially put me through school. I saw her putting in so many hours of overtime every weekend, getting home late just so that we can afford to pay my tuition at UC Davis so I could get my degree. And thinking about that past, I thought, you know, me and Ad Allison both thought to ourselves, like, oftentimes that's what happens in our community and communities of color, communities that come from immigrant backgrounds. A lot of us don't have the financial resources to be able to even get access to these opportunities where, you know, at the end of the day, a lot of these educational spaces, especially on the university level, is very much predominantly white and institutions that only serve a certain level of class, a certain level of, you know, economic status, a certain level of financial resources. And so for us, we were like, how can we challenge that? How can we alleviate that problem? And, you know, we thought a scholarship program, an annual scholarship program would help serve our community. And so we've been doing this since 2018, I'm proud to say. And 
We've also expanded our team. We now have Ate Heidi, Ate Paloma, and Ate Olivia on the team with us. And we've been doing Panice Rising for the last five years. And we've given out $500 financial scholarships for young Panice who are in the arts, but also use their art as a tool for activism. As Ate Allison would say, artivists. Yes, artivists. <laughs> I love, I love that. that. And I love that why and how you broke that down so eloquently. That's that lyricist right there. <laughs> <laughs> I always think of like an outline form. Like that's the lyricist, but also the nerd in me who grew up like loving writing essays. <laughs> shout out to us nerds. Also, huge shout out to single mothers. I didn't know that about you. My mom is also a single mother. Yeah, shout out to our single mamas out there who are doing Holding the it work. Down, you know, when Holding it down for the family. When I gave birth, I was like, how do single mothers do this? Right. I'm barely surviving. How, how does that watch how does that responsibility and just the amount of work it takes to able to not only provide for the family but to keep the family mm. going to, you know, build out the family and how does that responsibility fall on one person? And that happens, you know, obviously way too frequently and not even necessarily in the Filipino American community, but shout out to all the mamas yeah. out there who are filling in the roles for both parents. Yes. Much love much, to them. Much, much love, much respect for all the sacrifice and the work they do. But speaking about work, I can't go without asking about the second album. We are highly anticipating. <laughs> Who is this question? <laughs> I mean, you don't have to talk about it. We can edit this part out if you're like my creative process. It's very secretive. Do not ask. No I, <laughs> no, I definitely want to talk about it, especially because it's in progress and coming out. That in itself has been a journey too. I just want to quickly say that I think for the longest time after post us and post Circa 91, it really took me a long minute to ask myself like, what the hell do I write about on the sophomore album? What kind of music do I want to make? You know, after having come out with songs like Taking Names and Us and I think creating a record that a lot of people were able to relate to. And I think, again, the imposter syndrome kind of came in and I started asking myself, like, am I even worthy enough to come out with a sophomore album? And where do I go from here? I felt like I was kind of at a crossroads in my career where I can kind of choose like, okay, do I want to continue the conversation that Circa 91 started and the story that, you know, stemmed from there? Ultimately, I think I had to kind of sit down and remind myself that I'm not defined by a project. I'm not defined by a song or even by my career. At the end of the day, me, Ruby Ibarra, is not just a musician. Even as creatives, you know, me and you, Nicole, like we're not defined by our work. You know, there's so many more aspects to our lives, whether that's our personal relationships, our family, our other interests. And I think, you know, what I've come to realization is that from here, I, I just want to make music that continues to feel authentic to myself and where I am now. And even if that means that sonically, it might be kind of a departure from what Circa 91 sounded like, as long as I'm happy and feel fulfilled with my new music, at the end of the day, that's what's most important that, you know, this is representative of me and I need to satisfy and be confident in myself first before I even think about how other people might perceive it. So with that being said, 
the new music is coming out this year and I'm so excited to share it. It's a mix of so many different styles of music because in the last couple of years, I've been so blessed to be in collaboration with so many talented musicians from my band, the Balik Bayans, but also musicians from LA and across the Bay Area where a lot of the songs that we've already laid down on that album are very musical. We have elements of jazz, rock, hip-hop, spoken word in it where... Let me just say, if you loved Circa 91, you're going to love the sophomore album. But I also want people to know that hopefully y'all will notice a growth in me artistically, but also a growth in my personal life. And I just want to kind of reassure folks that it's not to say that, you know, the lyricism is not there because trust me, the lyricism and the poetry is still going to be there. But I think in terms of story wise and where I'm at in my life, it's a separate story from Circa 91. But Musically, I'm so excited. I'm so excited to show y'all. We are hella excited. We are hella <laughs> excited. It's like, what is this going to drop? I've been waiting. No, but no pressure. I get it. As a creative, it's like it's going to happen when it needs to happen, when it gets to happen. You know, you can't rush that creative process. My husband's always like, are you finished with that second draft? Are you finished? I'm like, yo. <laughs> So rush. Do you find yourself like working well with deadlines? As a writer, yes. As a writer, yes. And this is why I constantly am signing up for workshops, writing workshops, because it, I just need oh, that yeah. deadline. Because if I don't have that deadline, it'll always just be in here. <laughs> <laughs> it'll be an open-ended project forever. <laughs> and my husband and my uncle who passed away will still be like, when are you going to sit down and write this? <laughs> But as an artist and as a creative, the work that we make is so personal. It's an mm -hmm. extension of ourselves. Yes. And I feel like to kind of put a rush on that or to limit yourself in terms of, okay, this is the amount of time and energy I'm going to put into this. I'm always kind of hesitant to do so because mm -hmm. this is like our baby. Like this is like another form of baby. Like I remember when Circa dropped, it was like the biggest sigh of relief. I'm like, okay, it's already out. Whether people like it or not is beyond my control. Just let people hear it. And I think I'm the same way right now with the sophomore album where those moments where I keep comparing it to my previous work. But I have to remind myself again that, you know, this this is where you are right now. Mm -hmm. You being a fan of your music or you being a fan of your art or your writing has to be number one. Because if you're not a fan of yourself, I ask myself, like, am I even deserving of having fans outside if I'm not a fan of myself first and I think that's what I've come to learn is that I need to still love what I do in order for me to be happy again taking ownership of our own work and our own story and reminding ourselves that your voice and your story is yours 100% 100% it's like this fine balance right because right now I'm on my second draft but the first draft is written it's written it's a BIPOC you know it's about my uncle and his life which I honor, but it's also like, but is this my voice? Mm. Like as a writer and creator and even filmmaker, mm. which I love magic realism. Like that's my shit. Like um, <laughs> Amelie is like one of my favorite movies. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's amazing. <laughs> and I was like, I want to include parts of magic realism into this story. How do I do that? So this is like my dilemma for the second draft is like, this is his story, but how do I do it in a way where I'm also, like you said, honoring myself 
and now living with this movie that I'm going to spend the next 5, 10, 15 years producing and creating with <laughs> collaborating yeah. with other Filipinos in the business, how am I going to be able to like put out this work that I'm 100% like, yes, proud of and that I like, let's just be real, that you like, you know, it's like you said, it's like a child. Yes, it's your second child. It's a labor of love. Like you spend, you know, so many hours creating something and it takes not only, you know, the mental work, but also the emotional capacity to be able to put yourself in a vulnerable situation as a creative. Like you need to, I feel like the best work comes from those spaces of vulnerability. And it's so demanding, I think, on an individual. You're giving so much of yourself to be able to produce this artwork or this product. And it's a constant process of, like what you said, like that finding that balance of, I want to satisfy, you know, how people will perceive or like this thing that I'm creating. But at the same time, I also want to satisfy myself and making sure that I'm happy with what I'm coming up with. Yeah. It's tough. <laughs> it's a dance. It's a dance for sure. It is. It's a dance. I think that's the best way to. I think it. that was one of my questions for you. It's like, what advice do you give, you know, the younger generation or, you know, Phil Ams or Philippine X folks, creatives that are coming up now? And this is exactly the conversation I think they need to hear is it can't just be for other people, it needs to be a balance for you know we talk about kapal we talk about legacy but also you have to think about yourself you have to think about yourself i think for the young artists out there i feel like you can't leave out you know the kapwa in the conversation i think inherently like we care about what other people think that's just our human nature we care about especially those the people that we love and respect we care about what they think about us but there's also that you know personal aspect to it as an artist where you have to, again, ask yourself, like what I said earlier in this conversation, and like, why do I do what I do? And when you ask yourself that question while you're creating your art and, you know, you're able to answer it, I feel like that helps, you know, drive the direction. And for the young artists out there, advice, you know, having said that, an advice that I would say is to definitely take care of ourselves. I think we talked about this earlier, where in a time right now where social media like you have to put your work on social media, you have to promote yourself on social media. And we kind of create this alternate reality, I think, of who we are as artists and projecting ourselves in a way that satisfies other people 100% of the time where we forget about our mental health, our emotional health. And like I said, you know, as artists, we give, give, give and give, whether that is the creating process or that's the performance process. Like, for example, when I'm on stage with my band, it's 100% just an ongoing release of emotions, especially when I do songs like Background and 7,000 Miles. Every time I perform those songs, I'm taking back to that moment when I first wrote them and all those emotions come rushing back. All those memories come rushing back why I wrote those songs in the first place. And it's healing, but at the same time, there's also this kind of level of trauma that comes with revisiting you know, those memories and those emotions. And when you're doing that constantly, you're on tour, you're on the road and you have shows back to back and you're putting yourself in that space of vulnerability over and over again, it's taxing. It's taxing spiritually, it's taxing mentally. If I could offer a piece of advice today, it would be remember to carve space on a daily basis to take care of ourselves and to kind of re-energize and 
allow ourselves to also heal outside of the work that we do to find those moments and find that time and find the people that allow us to stay centered in what we do and reminding ourselves again that we're not just defined by our work that we're a whole human being who have so many sides to ourselves and allowing ourselves to access those different parts yes <laughs> I feel like it's like a constantly uh a woman on that <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much ruby you know again like with ate allison i feel like we could spend another hour i didn't even get to half of my question <laughs> you only got through four questions what do you mean <laughs> We'll just have to bring you back on for another episode. That's what that part means. Yeah. Maybe when the album is out, we should do a part exactly. two. Exactly. Is there anything else you want to like plug? I know we talked about your album. We talked about your episode on blind spotting. But is there anything else that you want to plug or mention before we say bye? I definitely do. And what I want to plug today is other amazing Panais who mean so much to me. Again, if you haven't heard classy's good seeds album yet i implore all of you encourage all of you to please go on beatrockmusic.com open up apple itunes open up spotify go on bandcamp do whatever you have to do but don't download it illegally y'all gotta support your local artists don't be like me back then <laughs> please support classy in all seriousness her album is phenomenal my favorite album so far this year and in addition to that, I also want to promote Astrologic, my friends, Charito and Chen. They are actually dropping their very first documentary tomorrow, May 11th, 7 p.m. They'll be in L.A. But I believe they're also doing a virtual screening. So for the folks that are interested, I think by the time this podcast is out, their documentary is out. So look it up, Astrologic documentary. They also have a new single coming out soon support these amazing artists y'all we have such a plethora of brilliant writers and creatives in our community and i think if we continue to especially support you know the local acts that's what's really gonna make our community thrive and allow us to get more of this kind of diverse content and artistry is like if we just show up for one another like let's show up let's buy the tickets Let's buy the merch. Let's buy the albums. Let's go to the events. Let's go to the shows. Let's listen to these podcasts so that we can keep producing more things like this. And make sure y'all also support the artists from Balai Creative who have been doing amazing work. Yes. And I just want to give you flowers, Ruby. Like, Ruby has really shown up. You're on the cover of Vogue and in Vogue Philippines. But then she's like gracing the stage at KQED you know, showing up for community and our Balai creative musicians like Nikbo and Wida, and you're a mentor for them when we ask you, when we call on you. So it's like, how is Ruby in a million places at the same time? You know, <laughs> you're like... That was AI Ruby. <laughs> <laughs> you're magic. And I just want to thank you <laughs> for always like showing up for us in all your forms and in who you are and as an artivist and all the work that you do for the Kapwa. So thank you. Thank you. It's dope, you know, to get on these platforms and for these opportunities to come. But for me, I would rather always be in, in community. I would rather be in these spaces where I see people who I know, who I see people that are come from our community, the, the faces that look familiar, the faces that are Kapwa, the faces that, you know, I grew up with, the faces that look like ours and making sure that, you know, we, again, support each other's events and, 
support each other's projects because to me that is where the building needs to happen for us to lay the foundation it's not on these bigger platforms it's here at home and home is the bay i would always favor doing a community event and building with you know community organizers and members than being on some fake shit it's like i said fubu for us by us yes we're taking up space but we're also building our own Yep. And that's really the intention behind Balai Creative is we are building our own and we are elevating everyone on our own platforms and our own spaces and showing the possibility in it for future generations. So so thank you so much, Rui, for being part of that. And we will see you next time. Episode 105. <laughs> <laughs> Let's do it. <laughs> All right, Ruby. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Unapologetically standing as a brown panai is one of many superpowers Ruby possesses as a rapper and artist. Ruby shared how decolonizing her mind and unlearning patterns of self-hate have helped shape her voice as an artist. And by embracing her Warawarai language and her Filipino culture, she shows through example that we can stand in our own power, take control of our own narrative, and be successful in our own artistic careers. We hope Ruby sharing in this episode was both empowering and inspiring. You can find Ruby on Instagram at rubyabara and visit her website at rubyabara.com. Cultural Cultivators is hosted by me, Nicole Saliver. You can follow me at Kindred Kapwa on Instagram. And this podcast is co-produced by John Reyes and Balai Creative. It is a product of Cultivate Labs. Stay in touch at balaicreative.org. Creative is spelled with a K.